Okay, Dr. Tal, can you present your case? This is a 54-year-old French woman who was diagnosed at age 51 with breast cancer in May of 2004. At that time, her GYN felt just a vague thickening in her breast, and this turned out to be a fairly significant breast cancer, I think about three centimeters in size, but with 11 positive lymph nodes, ER positive, PR negative, HER2 negative. She ended up with a mastectomy, and then we did dose-dense acetaxel, followed up with radiation. She had been taking birth control pills regularly for 30-plus years, and so she was still having monthly cycles. And we presumed by hormone levels that she was perimenopausal. She then was put on tamoxifen, which she remained on for about a year after diagnosis. So six months after she had finished her therapy, she started having a rise in her tumor markers. PET scan was negative. I really wasn't pleased with tamoxifen anyway, and so we said, well, hormone levels were still being sort of perimenopausal. We put her on Zolodex and Arimidex with the assumption that at least that might be better adjuvant therapy. We didn't have any proof that she had metastatic disease at that point. You worked her up? She had a PET scan at that time that was negative, a PET CT. How high were the tumor markers? Which tumor markers? My recollection is about like in a 50 or so on the CA 2729. Within a couple of weeks, she started becoming symptomatic with a persistent cough. This is a very athletic woman. She swims an hour a day for exercise, and she just was getting a little breathless with her swimming. She was still able to do it, but she had an annoying dry cough. Probably not more than a month after her negative PET scan, we did a high-resolution CAT scan, and it looked like she might have lymphangetic lung disease and had a bronchoscopy, which proved that that was the case, biopsy proven. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about what was going on at that point. Well, of course, she was very devastated by that because she had been through very aggressive treatment. And during her initial chemotherapy, she was bound and determined not to lose her hair. And she would wear a gauze-like scarf on her scalp to try and mat her hair down and just didn't wash her hair at all and continued to... I mean, it was... Like the old ice cap thing? Well, it was an ice cap. I mean, it was just a cap. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could just see this hair underneath that really wasn't probably attached to her scalp anymore. So it was very devastating to her to think, you know, she was going to have to think about going through all that again because it wasn't like she was wiped out. She just had an annoying cough. But again, just her previous experience with chemotherapy? The chemotherapy hadn't really been too bad except for the issue about the hair. But she had boyfriend in France, family in France, and she said, I need to go back and see my family before we start chemotherapy. She wanted to go back to see her family. What were you thinking you wanted to do? I imagine you were pretty worried at that point. This is that visceral crisis concern that I was afraid that in the next few weeks she might really get into significant trouble. I was worried about her even flying back to France, and I wanted to start treatment right away. Did you verbalize your concern to her? Yeah. What was she thinking? What did she say? She's a very headstrong person, and she makes her own decisions. She understood that there was some risk, but she really felt it was necessary to go home and tell her family. At that point, how much symptomatology did she have? Again, she was still able to swim an hour. She was just more breathless and was having more irritating cough both day and night. If she had said, just treat me with whatever you think is appropriate, what do you think you would have done? Well, at that time... This was about how long ago? This was December '05. Uh, so the Avasta stuff was out, but we weren't really getting paid for it. So I probably would have done a combination, Zolota and a Taxane. Zolota and a Taxane. And again, how long has it been since she's had the adjuvant chemo? Finished about eight months prior to that. Eight months prior to it. So, Joe, again, let's just assume she's willing to take whatever therapy you recommend. Did you get blood? I'm sorry, no. She was on hormone therapy for about a year. So it's been about a year since the end of the chemo. And could you talk more about what the CAT scan actually looked like? 
just some thickening in the actual airways, just a very, no nodularity at all in the lungs, but just some hazy thickening. And this was throughout the lung fields? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is not just under the radiation field? No. So, Joe, you've got a lady who's a year after dose-dense AC paclitaxel has got lymphangitic spread. That sounds pretty scary. What do you think it would ideally would have done? She has no hemoptysis? No. Okay. Either a combination chemotherapy regimen or cytotoxic-based regimen or paclitaxel plus bevacizumab, I think, would be reasonable options. What about combination chemotherapy plus bev? Well, it's tempting to speculate that if you use the combination cytotoxic regimen that would typically be associated with a higher response rate than single-agent therapy, that using it concurrently with bevacizumab might amplify the response that you might see. I'm sure there are many phase two trials ongoing like that, or perhaps even randomized phase twos that can address that question. But I think in the absence of that information, I think the paclitaxel bevacizumab or some combination chemotherapy regimen would be reasonable. Which combination? Something I think that would include an agent that she hasn't been exposed to, like capecitabine. I would be concerned about relying on a taxane alone. So either a taxane-capecitabine combination or another combination. Kathy? I would be thinking about a combination like taxotir and capecitabine. What about Bev, if you had it available? Yeah. With the two? Probably just with the taxane. And the other comment I'd make is that she has only been on the Zolodex and AI for a very short time. It may be that this just hasn't quite connected. And if she's going to go off to France and not take treatment for a few months, maybe she would at least stay on that. Aman? I think the lady has lymphogenic spread. She's symptomatic, and she x-ray what you describe, reticular nodular pattern. These patients, I think, would be better served by offering them systemic chemotherapy. And I would utilize the drug which the tumor has not been exposed. And I think with the availability of a ribbon one, where you could use chemotherapy and also she would have at least two out of three chances of getting bevacizumab. So which chemo agent or agents? I think if I was going to use the therapy, gemcitabine would be one of the drugs and also maybe even capecitabine or gemcitabine with a dosetaxel because she had taxol before, but not dosetaxel. If she says, I want to get the best therapy, if I have to pay for it, I'll pay for it, whatever, would you have given her Bev? I would think that I would give her two drugs, chemotherapeutic drugs, and also would include the biologics to see. Because the thing is that window of opportunity to control the lymphogenic spread is very short. If she doesn't respond, she's going to become very progressively symptomatic and will die very quickly. So I think in these type of patients, I would try to do the best. So can you follow up with what happened? We went ahead and just put on Zolota alone because she was going to go back to France and she was going to do this. So she was gone for about four weeks, five weeks. And when she came back, she was symptom-free. Cough was gone. She was swimming her hour a day. She felt great. She still had her hair. So she did and has done very well over this past year. She's stayed on the Zolota. Initially, I start folks at 2,000 per meter squared dosing and... She did well with that dose for a while. Tumor markers fell in about half and then stabilized, and her chest X-ray and CAT scans are clear. And then tumor markers started rising a bit in the summer, and so I said, well, you're from France, dadgummit. Let's give you 2,500, you know, (laughs) because she wasn't having any side effects at all. And at 2,500, she did get a little bit of hand-foot syndrome, but that was it. But tumor markers have continued to rise somewhat. November, her PET-CT was negative. 
Her breathing problems are gone? No symptoms at all. And then just last week, her LFTs and her tumor marker, like, jumped. Hmm. And we had a CAT scan done, and she had dilated biliary tree and just a fullness in the head of her pancreas. She has known gallstones that have been asymptomatic. And she had an ERCP done yesterday. There was no gallstone. There was a distinct narrowing in the bile duct. And I don't know yet what that biopsy has shown. He put a stent in. So I don't know if that's going to be a second cancer, if that's going to be some kind of weird sclerosing, non-cancerous thing, but her tumor marker jumped up as well as her LFTs. Or if this is going to be a single met there and nowhere else. And then if that's the case, my question to the panel is, now what would you do? <laughs> because this is a year on this, and I don't know that there's anything with Avastin at this point. So, so she's been on the Cape Side, I mean, for a year. Yeah. Just to pick up on on this issue of the transatlantic difference in tolerance to fluoroperimidines, which was reported at ASCO last year by Dan Haller in the colorectal arena, but yet the idea here is that maybe it's the diet or whatever. What are your thoughts about that? I think it's not the diet, it is the genetic makeup, and these are the enzyme deficiencies, are, the levels of the enzymes are different in different racial background, and some patients who have some of the deficiencies, they do tolerate capecitabine or these fluoropyrimidines very poorly because they cannot metabolize these drugs. But if she tolerated it well, I think that now she's having progressive disease, I would again try to switch her to some drugs which we talked about it earlier, to gemcitabine or gemcitabine with dosetaxol or with even abraxin, because there is some data to suggest that there is partial lack of cross-resistance between the abraxin and taxol and dosetaxol. Kathy, before the E2100 data can add on bevacizumab, there was a lot of enthusiasm for capecitabine in the metastatic setting mm-hmm. that was coming out of the research community. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were using it first line. There were a lot of people that had AC and taxanes, and everybody got all excited about bevacizumab. We haven't really talked about that. What are your thoughts about this story and the role of capecitabine in metastatic disease? Well, capecitabine's a better drug than we might have thought it was, and it kind of came through the FDA and on the market with remarkably little data. I was always chasing them to try to get them to really compare it to a taxane or compare it to something more mainstream. But it's a drug that's fallen into a lot of use in practice, and I think it's pretty active. It's pretty tolerable. You have to watch the doses. I, like you, start them lower and work them up if I can. And I think it's very individual whether they tolerate it. And I'm sure when we get into pharmacogenomics, we can probably sort them all out and tell them what to start on. But I think capecitabine is a really good drug in this kind of setting. And I would think now with this patient going on to something like docetaxel with bevacizumab or, I mean, I don't have access to bevacizumab in my setting, but I think I would think about it. Joe, what about the issue of the lack of alopecia with capecitabine in the metastatic setting? How much of an issue is this for patients? Yeah, I think that that is an issue for some patients, and it does represent an alternative. There are other agents like liposomal doxorubicin that don't cause alopecia venerelbine. But my bias is actually to try and save capecitabine for second or greater line therapy because, at least in the studies that have been published, there doesn't seem to be as much of an increase in the objective response rate as you might expect when you move it from second line to first line therapy. So I tend to save it in reserve, but do discuss it as an option as first line therapy if a patient doesn't want parenteral therapy. Amon, what's your algorithm in terms of sequential single agents? Obviously, it depends 
on prior therapy. Let's say they'd had those dense AC paclitaxel or taxane, which a lot of people have had, not like this patient with angitic disease, not super sick. What tends to be the sequence of single agents you use? It all depends on how quickly and if the patient had adjuvant systemic therapy and when did they relapse. If the patient relapses relatively short period of time, within a year, the drugs which they were receiving in the adjuvant setting, most likely the tumor is resistant. And most of the time, if they got AC and taxin, then I think capecitabine would be a reasonable option to start at that point. And the thing is that if the patient does get a benefit, the benefit is fairly durable, as in this patient that some of the patients I have who have been staying on capecitabine in attenuated doses, even up to two years, or maybe longer, some of them. I guess, Kathy, we talk about the first therapy most likely is the one that the patient's going to be on the longest. Any thoughts about tolerability and safety of capecitabine versus the other options? Yeah, if we have people relapsing after a decent interval, we often go to docetaxel as a first-line therapy and capecitabine as a second-line therapy or vinorelbine in there somewhere. And, you know, I think capecitabine is a pretty active drug. For patients who want to keep their hair as long as they can and not have to come into the unit as often, I think it's a good option, especially as more and more of the adjuvant patients relapsing have had taxing and more taxing. Would any of y'all consider going back to a hormone therapy at this point? Because indeed, she didn't really get any test of an AI after this, Always. her tamoxifen. She it looks like she only has isolated disease. What if we stint that and she's asymptomatic and why not go to hormone? And what about Avastin now? this really isn't first-line metastatic disease, would you really be using Avastin at this point? Well, I think whether you use Avastin in first or second line is probably, I know it's not where it's been explored, but I think it's probably neither here nor there. I would go back to a hormone in this patient. I mean, that was one of my thoughts at the beginning, is that she really didn't get enough exposure to the Zolidex AI to tell whether she might have responded to it or not, and that certainly would be an option. If you were pressed, is Avastin with Zolota really a dead issue? Because there was a better response rate, and so she might still have preserved. I mean, it turned out great, but it might still have preserved her hair. There are a fair amount of people, Kathy, in our patterns of care studies and researchers who use capecitabine and BEV in spite of that, quote, negative trial. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I always said, what's a negative trial when the response rate is doubled? I think there was some effect of it. And I think in these patients in the metastatic setting, it's often hard to see. You'd like to see time to progression, obviously. I think it's always hard to see overall survival differences for sure. So I would think that's not an unreasonable thing to do. 